0: God calls us to worship this morning from the book of Zephaniah chapter 3. Hear God's word for us. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. God's love for us shows us our sin. And our need for Jesus. And the way that God does this is by his grace. It's by his grace that we see our sin and we see our need for Jesus. And we are reminded in worship each week that no one is so bad that we are beyond the reach of God's grace. And no one is so good that we aren't in constant need of that very same grace. And so let's confess our sin and our need for Jesus together. Uh, We're going to do that out loud with our confession of sin. And then after we say that out loud, we'll spend a few moments quietly going before our God and confessing our sin and seeing our need for our Jesus. So let's confess and acknowledge our sin together this morning. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Out of the overflow of your love, you made all things good. We were created in your image to love you, each other, and the place you put us. Life was belonging to you and living for your glory. But when tempted, we turned away from you and ran headlong into sin and destruction. In this, we brought shame, guilt, and curse onto ourselves and all of creation. Because of this, we are bent toward finding our identity in achieving love. We look to relationships to give us the love and belonging for which our hearts are longing. We settle for a cheapened version of love, unqualified affirmation. We often avoid anyone who challenges us to see our sin and change by grace. Forgive us. Father, open our eyes to the fullness of your love for us. Show us that Christ has come to us in love. Jesus, your love for us drove you to the cross to cover our sin with your blood. Convince us that the resurrection means your love has defeated sin and death. Holy Spirit, reveal to us that the love we long for is received and not achieved. Shape us by your love for us. Help us groan with all creation for redemption. Take away our desire to achieve love. Give us a desire to receive it. All is grace. All is gift. Amen. Now let's take a few moments to quietly go before our God, confess our sin, and see his grace and forgiveness to you in his son Jesus. Gracious Heavenly Father, we confess all of these things in the hope of your mercy to us, which is fully and finally given in your one and only Son, our Savior, Jesus. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would continue to change us by grace, to make us more and more like our Savior. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Grace. God pursues in grace. God changes in grace. God forgives In grace. So hear this assurance of God's grace to us, God's forgiveness to us. It comes from Ephesians chapter 2 and 3 this morning. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. All of this by grace. And it's grace that drives us to declare God's love for us, what he has done, and what he is doing to unite all things in heaven and on earth. And we're going to do that this morning by using the Apostles' Creed. And so I'm going to ask the question, and then let's respond together. Beloved of Christ, what is it that we believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead.
1: Good morning. It's good to be with you. As those of you that are on the other side of this camera are watching from home with friends, uh, remember that we want to encourage you to invite a couple families with you as you feel comfortable. And we certainly want to communicate to you that we long for the day that we will be with you in person again when you feel safe enough to venture out and try worshiping here. And even more than that, when we can all gather together again without any significant fear or without any significant reservation. We look forward to that. So just know that we miss you and we look forward to hearing from you and seeing you as God's good providence would allow. This morning we're looking at the book of Zephaniah together. This is another one of those prophets in the Old Testament. I want to remind you that we are looking at the story of Scripture together through the framework of three three loves love god love people love place we derive those three loves from the from the first couple chapters of the first book of the bible genesis 1 and 2 and we see it played out through the history and through the rest of the scriptures four this is another part of the framework three loves the four part story creation rebellion redemption restoration all four parts are needed to understand what god is saying in his word To reduce the story of Scripture to two parts is inadequate to fully understand what God is communicating. We need all four parts of the story to understand what God is doing. Five threads, three loves, four parts, five threads. God has always had a people. He is always building His church. Genesis to Revelation. Sin is real. But it never gets the last word. Genesis to Revelation. Grace that JP just mentioned to you in the assurance of pardon. God initiates, God pursues, God saves. Grace, Genesis to Revelation. Jesus did it. He accomplished something. He is a literal Savior. We can understand redemption from Genesis 3 through the rest of the scriptures. And finally, five, everything is moving toward Jesus. My life, your life, reality, Scripture in the Old Testament, every passage of the Bible, all moving toward Jesus. That's our framework. Don't forget it. Pray it into your hearts. Test it with Scripture. See if it's true. Live by it. Let's look this morning at Zephaniah. I've tried to put together again a bunch of verses that encapsulate the totality of this message from God for us. So follow along as you can. I will be referring to these verses a lot in the sermon. So even if you don't uh, memorize them, of course, even if you don't have them all memorized by the time we read, finish reading this together, just know these verses are the framework from which to understand the book of Zephaniah. So listen to this. It's God's word. Receive it as if it comes from him. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah: I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away bird, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal in the name of the idolatrous, idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. At that time... I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Gathered together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord, seek the Lord, "'Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. "'Seek righteousness, seek humility. "'Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. "'For Gaza shall be deserted, and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. "'I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, "'how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory.' You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Therefore, Wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for speaking, we thank you for guiding men. We thank you for granting men the Holy Spirit as they write so that what we have here expresses your heart, your thoughts, your message. It communicates to us that there is good news because all that we read is communicating something about Jesus. So we ask, Lord, that you would help us to receive your word, to dive into this stuff that might be initially off-putting or, or maybe even stirs up fear. Help us to receive your word as it is truth. That we might be anchored in what is unchanging. That we might be anchored in the one who loves our soul. That we might be anchored in Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen. By way of introduction this morning, I want us to think together about two questions. And yes, we're going to slow down. This introduction is going to be longer than normal because I really, really, really want you to think about with me these two questions. Question number one. Why do you love what you love? Really give that some thought now and after the message. Think about this, if you will. Why do you love what you love? I love to exercise by playing tennis because it gets me away from things that tend to dominate my mind, my emotions, my life, my time. It's a way for me to get away from things and think about something else. I love ice cream especially on since it's been so hot lately it's been refreshing plus it just tastes good but i want us to go deeper i want you to go deeper do you love anyone or anything will you let someone love you that doesn't completely agree with you do you love anything that doesn't completely agree with you? Will you let someone love you that doesn't completely agree with you? I want you to think about that because of this. The dominant definition of love in the culture that we live, in the culture that we make up, the dominant definition of love is this, unqualified affirmation. All of us want to be affirmed. We love to be affirmed for every thought, every position, every opinion, everything that we say, everything that we do. And unless someone does that, unless they affirm everything without qualification, we think they don't love us. And you need to hear that definition, unqualified affirmation, that definition of love is not enough for you. And it is not enough for me. That definition of love is not enough to complete your heart, to make you whole, to help you understand what it means to be fully human. It's not enough. Here's the second question. Think about this. In addition to the first question, think about this. Right now, in real time, what do you sense is God's disposition toward you? Right now, in real time, at this moment, what do you think God's disposition toward you is? Do you think he's the cop that sits over there up the street just a little bit? at the feed and see, the plant and see place, discreetly hides, waiting for you to pass by in a car, ready to flash on the blue lights and catch you doing something wrong. Maybe it's deeper than that. Maybe you think of God as like a cop that maybe doesn't just want to catch you doing something wrong, but Maybe he wants to bring physical harm or constantly threatens harm in your life. Is that the way you view God? Right now in real time, is that what you think? Is that what you sense? Is his disposition toward you? What do you think he thinks of you? And if you're really struggling to answer that question, here's how you can figure out what you think. Look at the way, I know this is not going to be easy, look at the way you treat people. Because the way you treat other people reflects the way you think God treats you. So look deeply, reflect, maybe ask somebody to help you understand this. Do you relate to other people through rules do you relate to other people as to whether or not they're useful to you or not? Do you relate to other people just through a transactional relationship? Like they got something you need, something you want. Do you relate to people just through a business model? How do you treat people Because the way that you treat people reflects the way you think God treats you. And that could be anything that we've said in addition to a host of other things. Just indifferent, don't care. Could even be that you feel like people have to prove something to you. That you're always hesitant to really commit. Because you're not sure about this other person at all. Think about those two questions. Think about them deeply. Ponder them. Because what I want to show you from this text is that the love that we need, the love that we really need, the love that we most need, is received, not achieved. The love that we need is received, not achieved. And that means that this message, the word of God from Zephaniah, what we're going to talk about today, this message is for those of us who are love sick. This message is for those of us who have only known conditional love. This message is for those of us that are full of shame. This message is for those of us that have a tendency to be harsh with others and have been on the receiving end of harsh treatment. This means that this message is for those of us that want to change. We just don't know how. This message is for those of us that cling so tightly to things that aren't primarily important. This message is for us, people like you and me. You see, the Word of God is not ultimately, it doesn't ultimately lead to behavior modification. That's not what every passage is about, It's just modifying your behavior. The Word of God brings forth life because it brings us to Jesus. So I want to look at this book of Zephaniah with you, thinking about those two questions, reflecting on those with you together. I want to show you the background of Zephaniah, and then I want to talk about the two days of Zephaniah. So let's jump in. Here's a little bit of background to Zephaniah. Zephaniah lived, as the first verse tells you, during the reign of Josiah as king. That means that Zephaniah walked around and and lived and and, and wrote during the time in which God's people were were being restored to God. Their relationship to God was being renewed. It was fresh. They were excited. They even found God's word. But then toward the end of Josiah's reign, God's people rebelled. They turned their back on God. They went their own way. They didn't want to listen to God. They didn't want to do what God says. They didn't want to orient their lives around the reality that God had created them, about that God had built them to love him and love others and love the place where he had put them. They didn't want that. They wanted something else. So they turned their back on God. Zephaniah lived during that time of decline. He saw a time of joy and thankfulness in relationship with God. And then he saw the decline. We know that Assyria was ransacked and decimated in 612. It's even mentioned in Zephaniah. We know that Zephaniah prophesied and wrote this book before 612. So more than likely this book was written sometime around 620, 625 is a round number sometime in there. And Zephaniah communicates his message through this little phrase. If you get this phrase down, you'll understand the message of Zephaniah and therefore God's message to you and me. The day of the Lord. Zephaniah mentions that phrase over and over and over in these three chapters. The day of the Lord. It's a summary of God's message to us. It's not talking about a 24-hour day. It's talking about a season. It's talking about a segment of time. Zephaniah says there are actually two days. The day of anger and the day of restoration. You probably picked up on the anger piece as I read these verses and we read them together. The day of anger and day of restoration. The day of anger and the day of restoration. And the thing is this, those days of the Lord, anger and restoration, are actually teaching us about the love of God. So let's jump in and try to understand the day of anger If you go back and read the verses that we read together, you'll find at least from the top, if I remember correctly, in chapter one and certainly in two and three, but certainly in one, what you find out is this that the day of anger, God says, comes to everyone, everywhere, for everything. The day of God's anger is universal. To break that down even more, God specifies after that that he is frustrated and angry with Judah and Jerusalem. His people, it even says more than that, that God is frustrated and angry with the nations. When you read chapter 2, you will find representations of nations in the north and the south and the east and the west in order to say as a, in toto God is angry with the nations. Here's why. God's anger encompasses everyone for everything, everywhere. Because of idolatry. He mentions that in these verses that we read together. Idolatry. You see, idolatry is when we take good things. As one man said, when you take good things and make them ultimate. Meaning you take things that are good. And you try to derive ultimate meaning from them purpose, hope, joy. When you take things that are good and try to build your identity around those things that are good, to take good things and make them ultimate things. To say it another way, idolatry is when we, at a heart level, love anything more than God. The second thing that God is concerned about is this. He's concerned about our view of God. You see, the folks that he writes to, people like you and me, we all have a tendency to look at God and just think, well, God's useful. I want God to do this. Therefore, when I'm down, I'll call out to him and hopefully get what I want. The view of God is that God is just useful. He's there at my discretion to hopefully do what I want to do so I'll have this bargaining-type relationship with him. In other words, the view of God that he's so frustrated with is that he looks upon us in any other way other than love. Is to think that God has any other disposition toward us than love. And the third thing that God's concerned about is just flat out our spiritual disposition. It's not just that we have a wrong view of God. It's that spiritually speaking, our hearts are so far from God that we find it more attractive, more desirable to live our lives without the love of God without the love of God influencing every thought, every word, every deed, without the love of God telling us who we are in our hearts. You see, all of this, the anger of God, the day of the Lord being one of anger, all of this should lead us to repentance That's why God lays this out for us in chapter two. He summons us to repent. Did you notice how many times we read this idea before the anger of the Lord comes? Before this, before this, before this, before this. Seek the Lord. God is telling us that his anger is coming. Therefore, we should seek him, meaning we should repent. Now to bring back in things we've talked about before this summer, Remember repentance. Two illustrations. I want to review these quickly with you because they are so helpful, at least to me. Repentance is turning from something to something else. That's repentance. And the reality of that in our lives is that we all struggle with different things. And it's a lot harder to change the direction of a battleship, Right? If you're cruising along in a battleship out in the ocean, it can take a long period of time to change the direction of the battleship. We have some sins in our lives that are so deep that it's like trying to change the direction of a battleship. Other things in our lives, the things that we struggle with, our sins, our brokenness, our rebellion, are like trying to change direction with driving a plane, flying a plane, or driving a car. Other things are a little bit more simple, They're like riding a bike and changing direction or riding a skateboard and changing direction. They they can happen much quicker. But repentance is having the disposition of knowing that we need to change direction. And some of the things we need to change are really deep and happen really slow over a long period of time. And some things we just need to stop now. God's grace is there telling us to stop. God's grace is there giving us the power to do it. The other illustration is not that not only directional, going from something to something else. It's that repentance is actually more about Jesus than about our sin. I told you this. This hit me like a ton of bricks a number of years ago. I knew that hymn, perhaps you've sung it before, heard it. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I heard the exact same tune with different words. And the words were, I never wanted to follow Jesus. Repeated, repeated. I never wanted to follow Jesus. He rescued me. And then the last line, no turning back. And it dawned on me. Yes, it's true. I need to make decisions every day for Jesus. I need to decide for Jesus all the time, incessantly. But I also need to recognize that what is more true is that I want to decide for Jesus because he has rescued me, not because I have all of the power. And he was just sitting out there waiting on me. Repentance is claiming Christ because he has previously claimed me. Repentance is deciding for Jesus, yes, but it's reoriented because Christ's love was first and is stronger and more pure and more true. I want him. Because he loves me far more than anything else. You see, God is shooting straight with us. The day of anger, him summoning us, him pointing out idolatry, view of God, and just our own spiritual disposition, he's calling us out. We might even call this discipline. And I realize some of you have been disciplined in an extremely harsh way. Most of us have. And we have probably disciplined others in an extremely harsh way too. That's not what we're supposed to be thinking about here, harshness. God's discipline is always instruction. God's discipline is always motivated by love. God's discipline is always effective to communicate love, and that we need to change, and that he is not leaving us to try to change ourselves. He's with us in this. You see, discipline is just a little glimpse of the ultimate judgment. It's like little judgments meted out over Look, this isn't good. I'm with you. Let's work on this together and change. Acknowledge, turn from, turn to this because of Jesus. God is shooting straight with us. Repentance is good. You see, without repentance, if you allow this little sidebar, without repentance and without judgment and discipline, Let's just cut straight to it. Without God's anger and judgment, you and I have no real resources for leaning into a broken world. We just don't. Without the idea of God's anger and judgment being true, without those things as true, we have no resources and no real reason to work for justice in the world in which we live, you see Christianity starts with people being created in god 's image they 're image bearers in god 's world. The message of Christianity is that we start with god 's idea of justice that he cares for, meeting out proper consequences for things and protecting people and proper care for people because we are made in his image. And with those starting points being created in God's image and God's view of justice and the idea of judgment being real, we want to work for justice in the world. We want to see people cared for. We want to see people protected because God does. You see, The gospel really doesn't turn the idea of justice into a cause. It's far more relational than that. It means we don't have to look at the world that we are living in, the society that we respectively live in, and think about laws and power to start with. We have something far more comprehensive. We have something far deeper than that we have god and his creation and god in his view of justice and because there is ultimate judgment justice will reign and that means to try to put a point on this as clearly as i can at this point it means we can't have a graced a grace based view of salvation and a merit-based view of relating to people and justice. It means we have to have a grace-based view of loving God. And we have to have a grace-based view of loving people. We can't have a grace-based view of God and a merit-based view of others and place. Well, that's a sidebar. The day of anger is screaming, telling us, shouting out loud. Unqualified affirmation is not enough. It's not real love. We need God shooting straight with us. We need God working repentance into us. We need God pursuing us to help us understand who we are. Help us understand what he loves. And help us understand he's turning us into loving what he loves. The second day is the day of restoration. This idea of restoration and the day of restoration is most clearly expressed in chapter 3. We find it in chapter 3. There's a day coming of restoration. You see, there's a day of anger. And there is a day of restoration. And those two days are actually two sides of the same coin. They fit together. They're inseparable, really. And that is explained for you and for me in bold print in chapter 3. Look at verse 8 and 9. Listen to it again. Listen to chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Listen to anger and restoration together at the same time. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Verse 9, for at that time... I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Do you hear that? The day of anger and the day of restoration are two sides of the same coin. They're talking about what God does. You see, Both of these verses are telling us that God is active in the world. These both are worldwide voices and expressions. They have worldwide implications and God is doing both. He is both expressing his anger and changing the speech, meaning changing people because out from the heart flows our speech. Anger and restoration go together. Now that means this. What is your view of God again? The right now, real time sense of how God feels about you, of what God's disposition is towards you, what God thinks of you, how God treats you. What is it? Do you feel like he's the cop that's out there either threatening harm or trying to catch you doing something wrong, ready to flip the blue light? Or do you see that he's a God of of love who really is committed to change, who really is frustrated with everything that would destroy you and destroy others and destroy the world? The clearest expression of restoration itself is found in verses 14 through 17, which we read. And in particular, verse 17. You've heard this verse many times. I often use it as a benediction. So does John Paul. Take this in. God's restoration is most clearly expressed in verse 17. That he is a mighty God. God. He is full of power, and he is saving you. He is saving me. Not only that, but he is rejoicing over you with gladness. And he exalts over you with loud singing. Can you take that in? Is it hard for you to take that in? Do you have a hard time thinking that God is rejoicing over you? When you put these verses together, what you find when you read them is this. We are supposed to be singing and God is singing. We are supposed to be rejoicing and God is rejoicing. When you put these verses together, God's people and God are singing, rejoicing over the love that they have for one another. And this love and this joy and this rejoicing and this singing floods creation, fills the heavens. It is a picture of God with us and we with him. So I ask you this. Why is it hard for you to hear the voice of God? Why is it hard for you to hear him singing with joy over you? Why is it? You might say, I really struggle to hear God's voice because I have a deep sense of my own brokenness. It's so much easier for me to hear about the anger of the Lord. And I want to say, yes, it's true. Our hearts are idol factories and our idols are deep. Some of them look like battleships. Others of them in turning. Others are like riding a bike that we need to turn from. Yes, it's hard to hear God's voice because our idols are so deep and we have so many. But friend, look at verse 15. What God has done for us in and through Jesus, through his death and resurrection, is that he has canceled all judgment against you. That's what he specifically says in verse 15, that he has removed all judgment from you that was against you. That's done in Jesus. Maybe it's hard for you to hear God's voice because you have this overwhelming sense of shame. And yeah, it's true. When you view God as anything other than love, shame will dominate your life. Absolutely true. But look at verse 19. Because of what Jesus has done through his life and his death and his resurrection, God turns our shame into rejoicing. And maybe that means that as we connect our shame with repentance and we realize God is working repentance into us, we don't have a need to be full of shame or dominated by shame anymore. We can rejoice in what God has done with the rebellion that's within us. Maybe you have a hard time hearing God's voice because your enemies are all around. And I would ask, what? Tell me about your enemies. What are they? And what I'm really getting at is this. See, your enemies are always connected to fear. What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? What is it that brings so much fear into your life? What are your enemies that create this fear? And when you look back through these verses, what you find, I think it's in verse 15 and verse 19, that God defeats all of our enemies. That what Jesus has done, as he has conquered, he did it. He actually did something through the cross and the resurrection. He defeated death and sin and Satan. He crushed his head. It's happened already. The biggest breakthrough in your life is in your past, not the future. God removes our fear in Christ and through Jesus. Well, maybe maybe you have a hard time hearing God's voice. Because you wonder, where is he? I don't see him anywhere. He feels so distant from me. And I would say, friends, I get that. I get that really. I really get that. You see, when we have idols in our lives, they mean that other voices are loud. When we have shame in our life, it means that it pushes us away from coming to God and we have so much fear going on in our lives we feel like we have even more reason not to even try and when we try to live our lives on our own when we try to live without the love of God it can make God seem as though he isn't close at all But what verse 17 tells you and tells me is that God is in your midst. He's close. And he's saving you. Working repentance into you. Making it so that you hear his voice of love and joy. Making that voice louder and louder in your life. You see, the day of restoration... Is telling us that love, the love of God, makes our heart sing. Unqualified affirmation isn't enough. We need a love that makes our heart sing. And what that means is that we need a love that is received, not achieved. And in Christ, we have that love. And by getting out of ourselves and into him over and over and over, we continue to have the kind of lives that are built around the love that is received and not achieved. And all glory goes to him. And it's by grace. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for giving us this book of Zephaniah to teach us about love and to remind us that your love has both anger and restoration in it because it's how you work repentance into us and it's how you work getting us out of ourselves and into the Savior. So continue to work in us. Grant us repentance. Grant us, Lord, Grant us the ability to hear your voice and to hear your voice in a louder and louder way that your voice might dominate our lives. We pray this for your glory, for our good. We pray this, Lord, because it's in you that we have hope. Amen. Beloved, hear the voice of your God promising to bless you. And yes, wake up every morning and decide that you're going to live your life with God and you're going to receive what he has for you and you're going to live by his voice. The Lord your God is a mighty God. He is in your midst and he will save you. This week he will rejoice over you with gladness and he probably will quiet you with his love. And in the age to come, forever and ever, and even now, he exalts over you, his people, with loud singing. In the days coming that we will join in that song and say, worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. To him belongs all power and glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Go in his peace.